have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Encourage you to take notes. Encourage you to follow along in your Bible. We began a journey about three weeks ago, working through the book of Ephesians. And we've made it to verse 4. Only by God's grace, we've made it to verse 4. <laughs> we almost only made it to verse 4a this morning, as Thursday had planned to split up verse 4. And uh, for multiple reasons, God said, don't do that. <laughs> we were talking in house gathering, our Bible study in my house last Tuesday, about how we're like marking age of kids based on Ephesians. And one couple in our group that does not have any kids currently, the thought was that they might have a toddler by the time we get done with Ephesians. Not through adopting, right? So, we're gonna we're gonna make it, try to make it all through verse four. I mean, we still haven't done it yet, right? But we're gonna try and make it all through verse four this morning. And, and I just have to say, what we're gonna talk about this morning is glorious. It's glorious. What we're gonna talk about today, next to understanding the redeeming work of the Son. The blood-bought work, blood, bl yes, that, the gospel. But next to that, this truth, I think, changed my life second most. You know, Paul talks about in these words, I, <laughs> I honestly struggle to have words this morning in the rest, the other 3,400 words I have this morning is a frail attempt to try and explain what he talks about in verse 4. And so I, I just pray that God's word would do what only it can do this morning. Um, so with that said, let's read. We're just going to read through verse 10, to again, to help set context for verse 4. Let's read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Let's pray. Father, let's pray as we look at Your Word this morning that we would see Your mighty, glorious, sovereign, wonderful, gracious, merciful hand at work even before any of mankind took its first breath. Now let us see that this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, just kind of catch us up here very, very quickly. We're going to have to work quickly through this uh, if we are to get done in the next 60-ish minutes. So last week, Paul told us about these great blessings and treasures that are ours. These, for those who are followers of Christ, these great blessings and treasures. We saw the joy then that this brought to Paul's life. I mean, he says, blessed be the God and Father of 
our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole gospel that Paul is about to describe in these verses to come is the reason for why Paul says, God, you are praiseworthy. So blessed is God because of these things that we're about to talk about, including verse 4 today. We talked last week about this overarching eternal covenant that we see made within the Trinity that is, is alluded to here in this passage all throughout Scripture, this where you have God the Father choosing that He will save some people and that He will then forgive them and the Son covenanting that, that He will be the perfect one and that through His life He will redeem these people and God will forgive them and the Holy Spirit will be the one to apply these these benefits of the gospel and the ones who seal those people for the day of Christ's return. So you see this covenant is this overarching what, what we call the kind of the covenant of grace. And you have long before the world beginning, God devises this marvelous plan to glorify himself by displaying immense grace to some of his enemies. Us. Now we come to the question today. How are we, those who are followers of Jesus, how are we connected with such amazing graciousness? So how is it that all these spiritual blessings that Paul's about to talk about, how do they become ours? Blessings like adoption as sons, redemption through his blood, unity in Christ. How do these things become ours? How does salvation and all that that entails become ours? Just kind of our overarching question we're going to try to answer today. How are we connected to such amazing spiritual blessings? I have kind of a sub-question for you to ask. I want you to ask, answer the question right now in your mind, how were you saved? I want you to tell the story of your salvation. Start back as early as you can. And think, I, I even if you have notes, begin to write out right now the first couple sentences, okay? How were you saved? Just what's coming to mind? Start that story. How does the story of your salvation begin? Okay? Now that you have that in your mind, let me just speculate here for just a moment. Many of us probably begin with some measure of church experience, maybe the way we grew up, our household, maybe some intervening of God into our lives at some point. Maybe it's through a church or a neighbor or so on and so forth. And then probably at some point the story gets to, there was a day I realized my sinfulness and praised God for that and, and I asked God to forgive me of my sins and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Certainly, that's a glorious story of someone's salvation. But I want to show you something. I want to show you, and I don't, I don't want to uh, demean that story. That's glorious, okay? But I want to show you something. I want to show you, Paul doesn't begin, I don't think he would begin, if I was to ask Paul the same question today. Paul doesn't begin there. Paul is telling us here, ultimately from the, the broader context beyond verse 4, he is telling us God's grand redemptive plan. He's talking about how, how was Paul redeemed? How was Paul saved? And you, the faithful in Christ Jesus in Ephesus, how were you saved? And that's what he is getting ready to talk about. Paul doesn't begin with believing in Jesus as one's personal Savior. He doesn't go there. Matter of fact, I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't even begin with the work of Jesus. He doesn't begin with the cross. He doesn't begin with the sinless life of Jesus walking this earth and dying in our place. He doesn't begin there. Instead, he begins with the eternal past work of the Father, something that the Father did in eternity past. You know, as you study the Scripture as a whole, the Bible always starts with the work of the Father. The entire Bible, indeed, is about God's work in glorifying Himself through the redemption of His people. 
It is about God. It is about God's story. It is about God's plan to save his people. And something else I want to point out to us is that Paul knows the desperate estate that we are in. Paul knows the desperate estate in which he is in. I mean, he knows a lot of the same things, of course, that Jesus taught. Matthew 12, verse 34 through 35. Jesus speaking, of course, to the Pharisees here. But he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What Jesus is saying is that an evil person cannot do good. Choosing God is doing good. What is Jesus saying? Someone who is evil cannot choose God. It's not even possible for him to do this. Paul knows this. Paul knows that he, he's desperate. He knows that given the option between self-glorification and God-glorification, we would always choose self. We would always choose to make ourselves look big. Ephesians 2.1, we're going to make it here maybe end of the year sometime. He says this, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Right? He doesn't say that you were half alive, you were sick, you were on a bad road, you were just making poor decisions or whatever. He says you were dead. What can a dead person do? He can lay there dead. So unless that's what it takes to be saved, this dead person is hopeless. It's impossible. So he knows this of himself. He knows this of mankind. He knows that we are ultimately, each and every single one of us, prior to the work of God, are enslaved to our evilness, enslaved to our sin. The world around us that continues on and the sexual evolution that's taking place in our culture, they know no better. They can choose no better. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to choose what is better. So we can tell them how to choose things and what's the right answer, and we can do that all day long, but they, they're not going to do that until God has brought about a change in their lives. Paul knows that on our own, even with the cross of redemption hanging before our eyes, we would choose to crucify Jesus again and again and again. When redemption stands there for us to choose. So what is it that moves Paul to such great joy? What is it in verse 1? Blessed be God and Father. Where does, where does Paul begin as he tells the story of salvation? What is it that connects us? What is it that connects Paul? What is it that connects the Ephesians to the eternal blessings and Jesus Christ? With that said, let's reread verse 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. You see, the blessings of 1-3, verse 3, now begins to come into clearer focus with the words, even as. See, the idea of even as is that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing because of what He's done in verse 4. It's a causal statement. The blessings become ours not because of what we've done, but because of something that God has done. It's a cause. And what Paul says in verse 4 is that these blessings are ours because He chose us. It's plain as day that God chose us. Paul's thinking, okay? Paul's thinking is this wretched idolater, capable of only evil to the highest degree, was rescued before time even began when the Father said, This man, Paul, I'm going to make him my son. I'm going to make him my son. This man, Matt, I'm going to make him my son. 
this man calling, I'm going to make him my son. This woman, Joyce, I'm going to make her my daughter. And Paul, Paul, I mean, Paul knows. I mean, he has to know, right? He has to know. Paul understood that he deserved hell, but God chose him. Paul is not saying that God looked ahead and chose me because he knew that I would choose him, kind of a stamp of approval, and God kind of tied to the the binds of man's hands, but instead, quite the opposite. If anything, God looked forward and knew that Paul would never choose him, and in spite, he chooses Paul. God would look forward and see us choose him. Only because he brings that about. There's Paul. This even as, just to remind us again, tells us that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Why? Because he has chosen us. And the first thing I want you to see is that we are recipients of God's eternal blessings because God has sovereignly chosen us. I just have to say, just for just a brief moment, I know in the church, not necessarily this church, but in the church at large, that this doctrine is hated. I know. It's hated. It is hated, and people do hateful things because of this doctrine. I'm not going to spend today defending this doctrine because I don't think it needs defended. It's there. The burden of proof is on those who want to make it say something that it doesn't say. Paul says he chose us. And in verse 5 he's going to say he predestined us if you didn't get the choosing part. He chose us. But Paul says this. Paul, Paul begins. So that's all I'm going to say about that part, just for the record. But here where Paul says these, we're recipients because of God's eternal blessing, because God has sovereignly chosen us. The great theme of divine election is the first doctrine that Paul introduces here. He reaches back before creation. He reaches into eternity past when only God existed. I want to very quickly show you that the whole Bible teaches divine election. This is not something that Paul simply, that simply Paul dreamed up. Like what John Stott says. He says the doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not a human speculation. And then I say this, for what man would dream up such an assault on man's glory and pride? This doctrine just utterly destroys anything that we would have reason to be prideful of. For if we, I'll keep going. God's sovereign election, I'll just, just very quickly, in the Old Testament, I'd encourage you to go look for it for yourself. And God chose Abraham so as to bless him and bring blessing to the nations of the earth through him. Genesis 12, go look at it. Abraham did not deserve the choosing of God. Abraham deserved hell. God chose Abraham and chose to work in him. God chose Israel to be his treasured possessions from among a treasured possession from among the people. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 14. God chose her solely because of his gracious decision. It had nothing to do with Israel's choice or righteous behavior. Matter of fact, if you look at Israel's history, we can see that clearly he chooses her in spite of. And God's sovereign election in the New Testament. John 17, 1-3, I read part of this earlier. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom, what? You have given him. So it's clearly some that the Father have given to Jesus for eternal life and some that the Father has not given to Jesus for eternal life. That involves choosing. Those whom God had chose before the beginning of the world have been given to the Son who now has the authority to give them eternal life. Think about that. Father chooses, gives them to the Son. He's given the Son the authority to give them eternal life. Praise God. 
eternal life. What, what's this eternal life? That's these spiritual blessings that Paul's talking about in verse 2. These spiritual blessings, these, these blessings that connect us to the heavenly places. If you look at verse 6 of John chapter 17, again, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. He's pulled them out of the world and given them to Jesus. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What's he, what's he saying? First of all, before we ever became Christ's, before we ever became Jesus' possession, his blood-bought possession, before that ever happened, we were God's. We were his chosen people. He owned us. Jesus knows this. Jesus is recognizing that before they were ever given to him, they were God's to give. Look in verse 4 again of Ephesians. Notice the pronouns here in the very first beginning. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What are these referring to? Even as he, that's God, chose us, that's us. See what I did there? In him, that's Jesus. He chose us in Jesus. I like how Stott says it, so I just put it down as the next point. God puts us and Christ together in his mind. He puts us and... Think about that, church. What? He puts us, sinners, wretched, deserving of hell, with Jesus in his mind, his perfect, holy, infinitely good son. He puts us together before the foundation of the world. Don't overlook that. Guys, God chose to rescue people from the camp of his enemies. And then he spiritually places them together with Christ in his mind. If God looked ahead and saw anything, again, he would see his enemies crucifying his son, not people who would choose to worship him. But instead, he looks ahead in Jesus, and instead of abhorring us for our sins, if he was to look upon us without Jesus, he looks at us through Jesus, and he chooses, this is going to be my son. We are chosen you want a sub-point here? We are chosen in Christ because Jesus is the chosen one. We are chosen in Christ because Jesus is the chosen one. 9.35 of the book of Luke. says, And a voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my son, my what? My chosen one. Not a chosen one, but the chosen one. And I love what he says. Listen to him. Right? <laughs> Listen to him. So Jesus is chosen by God to go display God's holiness. But he does this on the earth without the redeeming work of another. Jesus doesn't need the redeeming work of a Savior. He is the Savior. So he goes, displays God's image for the world to see. Just as we were commanded to in the garden. To to reign and rule for God. Bearing his image before the earth. Jesus does this. He's chosen to come do this, and He does this perfectly without the need of redemption. And the Son then is the only one worthy to stand before God, holy and blameless, on His own. He is the chosen one. And so long ago, God knew the holiness of His Son, and knowing that the death it would cost His Son, as He knit you and I together with His Son by His shed blood. You know, all things were created in Christ. We're, we're kind of cool with that one in Colossians 1, 16. But before that, all those chosen unto redemption were chosen in Christ. Colossians 1, 16, created in Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, chosen in Christ. Before we're... This has always been God's mode of operation. It's always been through His Son, right? It's always through this work of the Son. Jesus is the foundation. 
the origin and the executor. All that is involved in election and its fruits depends on Him. Election is always and only in Christ. It is in Christ that our names are written down and acknowledged by God as His children. The Lamb's book of life. I know Lloyd-Jones refers to him, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to him as a register, kind of register, a, a recording of data that her names are now written in Jesus. We must remember that if God chose us in Christ, then that means that there was nothing in us worthy of consideration when he chose us. Otherwise, he would have said he chose us in Christ and because of blah, 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 blah. No, he chose us in Christ because there was nothing in us that was worthy of consideration. And I just want to speak to you, if you are unsure this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're unsure of that, I want to encourage you with these words, that there is still nothing in you worthy of consideration. Just like me, there's nothing in us worthy of consideration to make us fit to stand in the presence of a holy God. It's not fair. And you will spend your whole life looking for it. Matter of fact, you'll spend all of eternity looking for it and you will never find it. The only thing worthy of consideration for you to stand right before the presence of God is the righteousness and the blood work of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The Bible tells us if we'll repent of our sins and trust in Jesus as the payment for those sins, His work on the cross where he bore the wrath of God for you. That he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I just encourage you, even this moment, forget the rest of what I'm going to say. You just pray and ask God to forgive you and repent. We can get to the rest of this later. Just take a few moments and do that. And if you need help, Thinking through that later, certainly talk to me, talk to Rusty, we'll help you work through that. The second thing I want you to see is that, as a sub-point here, is that God chose us for saving before the world began. I want to concentrate on the before the world began part. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, before the world began. So this choosing of God was done before the world began. The choice in Christ was made in eternity past. Now the importance of timing, the timing of this choosing has to do with the idea of, I think, of circumstances. Like God, let me explain this, God was not reacting to a current situation or directed by the current will of man. He wasn't under the constraints of that. Instead, God decreed all that would take place before any of the circumstances of the world were set into motion. God's choosing was free from, if you will, the coercion or the doings of man. It was before man did anything, God chooses. Paul intends for us to understand that he made this decision freely, not based upon whether we deserved it or whether or not we would choose Instead, the reasons for election at this time and eternity past are rooted instead in the depths of God's graciousness, His mercy, and His sovereignty. Like what John Calvin says, he says, The very time of election shows it to be free for what could have, what, for what could have deserved or in what did our merit consist before the world was made. So here's what happens, right? You and I, apart from Christ, are unworthy and, uh, of standing before God, of enjoying His goodness. And instead, we're worthy, all of us, full, a full serving of God's wrath as punishment for our sin. That's where we stand, where we stood. Evil only ever desires evil, and so we were helpless. We were hopeless. But then rooted in grace and mercy and sovereignty, God chooses to rescue some from this hopelessness. He looks at them through the lens of Jesus and joins them together with His Son. Praise God. Again, why does He do this? I want to step back for a second. Why does God 
What's God's plan? Why does he do this? You see, I want to remind you, in the garden, man was given, I've kind of alluded to this already, was given the command to be fruitful and multiply, fill in the earth with what? Good people? With God's image. With people who were holy and righteous, where chaos did not reign, where God reigned, where his perfection was displayed for the earth to see. This is still God's plan. This has changed. He chose those whom he would rescue in order to redeem them to the image of his son. So for what purpose? So that the earth would again be filled with his glory. That we would go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that Christ's command. All that Christ's command, what does that entail? Imaging the glory of the Father. So now, God is going to do that with these people. He knew this all along. Even when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he knew these are the people that I've chosen. And they are going to image me to this world. Matter of fact, he's going to display me beyond this world. Let's go back to Ephesians 4. So I want you to see that. That's kind of the, the first part of the passage. That God's plan is to do the same thing. And this leads us then right into the second part of verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. I want you to see this. He chose us to stand before him enjoying a whole life. I wanted to explain that as we work through this. He chose us to stand before him, enjoying a whole life. Divine election sets you, sets me free to have the whole life. As a professor I had in seminary said, to have the good life. It sets us free to have the good life. We're all in pursuit of the good life. Because we look in all the wrong places. But election sets us free to enjoy the good life. As any time you are not living this way, God's good life, you have either A, forgotten that you are elect, or B, you're revealing that indeed you are not. He has chosen us to this. It's not an option. So choosing and unholiness doesn't go together. At least in an ultimate sense. Certainly we're going to struggle. That's what we're going to talk about. But as we talk about this holy and blameless living that we've been chosen to, this is where, okay, why don't you follow me? Because I, I know in, this, in our Christian world right now, we're, we're struggling, a lot of struggle with this. But this is where the law of God becomes so precious to God's people, okay? I want us to help us think, thinking law of God Thinking the holiness and blamelessness that we're called to. Now ultimately, in the law of God, I believe that we understand the law of God and we seek its application to our lives because the law or through the law as a display of God's, ultimately, ultimately God's holiness. Of God's character more broadly speaking. So we look to the law, it's not we pick and choose this law to listen to or this law to listen to or, oh, that's a ceremonial law, so I'm not a Jew, so I don't have to do that. No, we, I think we go back, we go, what is this revealing about the character of God that is ultimately displayed in the person of Jesus? What is this sharing us, showing us about the character of God? And those of us who are being made into the image of Jesus, we are bound to the character of God. So we'd say, well, what part of the law is useful for us? All of it is useful for us if you understand it rightly. 
I like what John Newton here says in his letters. He says, when we use the law as a glass to behold the glory of God, we use it lawfully. His glory is eminently revealed in Christ, but much of it is with a special reference to the law and cannot be otherwise discerned. We see the perfection and excellence of the law in his life. God was glorified by his obedience as a man. What a perfect character did he exhibit. Yet it is no other than a transcript of the law. Jesus lives the law perfectly. So we as Christians can't just throw the law out. When we look at the law, we're no longer under the law as a, like a transcript of do's and don'ts in the sense that we do these things to earn any kind of standing before God. But instead we look at the law now in order to see the character of God and we are certainly bound to that. So as we think about holiness and blamelessness, we see Christ as the ultimate display of holiness and blamelessness. But what is Christ doing? He's living out the transcript of the law. He's living it out perfectly. And that's where he's going with the, with the Pharisees and saying, well, you say don't murder, but I say if you've looked at your brother. So what, what is he doing there? He's interpreting the law. He's showing us that, yes, certainly do not murder your brother, but I say that that law points back to the hatred that's in your heart. You may not physically do it, but in your heart you do it. And so therefore you're just as guilty. Why? Because your heart should reveal and display the character of God, not just your actions. So we look at the law, we go, what is the law saying about God? How is this reflecting His holiness and blamelessness? Election brings, in this passage, verse 4, brings great privilege, but it also brings great responsibility. God's purpose in election was not simply the choosing of a people to grant forgiveness to. Right? It's more than that. His choosing, God's purpose in election was ultimately to choose and redeem a people to the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, in the gospel, you don't just get forgiveness, you get glory. Right? You don't just get forgiveness, you get glory. One day we will be presented, hear, hear me, we will be presented to the groom, our Savior Jesus Christ, spotless and without blame, holy and righteous. We will love our God with everything that is a part of us. In election, we don't just get forgiveness. Praise God we get forgiveness. But we get presented in a white dress. I know it's weird for me to think of as a man, but we will. Right? We'll get presented. We have to walk down the aisle in purity and without blame. We have to stand before the Father and Him go, my children. What's it take to stand before the Father? That we would be like Him. That we would be holy. That's what we get. God chose us to stand before Him holy and blameless. I want to talk about this holy and blameless just very briefly here. Both words are describing sanctification. Talking about the, the transformation that takes place after justification before glorification. So this time in between. Sanctification. Working out our salvation as Paul calls it. Holiness and blameless. Holiness, I believe Paul here is referring to an inward or an internal purity. Something that that is brought about from the depths of the heart. And then blamelessness, I think what Paul intends for us to see, is this outward or external condition of purity, where people looking onward can find no blame in our lives, that there is nothing blameworthy that is coming from the actions of our life that ultimately come from the heart or the seat of our being. So this idea... I mean, many of us grew up in churches where there's all this external righteousness and holiness that's on display, but people's hearts are far from it. We kind of call that probably legalism there. Like, but then this idea that I can have a pure heart and my actions don't matter. No, both things matter. 
Colossians 1.22, we'll move on here. He says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The purpose of Christ's reconciling work is the presentation of his people to be like him before God. That's the purpose of his work. Think about this for me for just a second. So what you mean is that God is working in my life in such a way that I can stand before him holy and blameless? What? Hebrews 12, 14, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You should go read that verse. That holiness without which no one can see the Lord, this is being brought about as a reality in our lives because of the work of his son Jesus, because of ultimately rooted in his choosing. Like what Lloyd Jones says about this. He says, another way to think of this is communing with God. Communing with God. That we would stand before God as holy and blameless. In one sense, now in its full reality, and another sense, not yet in its full reality. There's a sense in which we now stand in Jesus before God as holy and blameless, but yet still working through this. It's a hard thing to understand, but then there will be, when we get to heaven, where there will be not this struggling with sin, but we will stand before the Father holy and blameless. But nevertheless, we get to commune with God. He has chosen us to commune with Him. I want you to think garden and walking in the midst of God's presence. The next thing we see is that God chose us to stand before Him holy and blameless in love. Very briefly, in love, in the Greek, can go with he chose us in love it can go we stand before him holy and blameless in love like our love for the father or in love he predestined us okay like it can go any of those three places all three of those statements are true in love he chose us amen we stand before him loving him holy and blameless yeah amen in love he predestined us yes amen all three of those i think it's best goes with we stand before him holy and blameless in love. Could be wrong. You pick your you take your choice. I think it goes here. Here's why. Throughout Paul, this idea of being enemies of God is prevalent. Being haters of God is all over the place. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Of course, this verse reinforces what I was saying earlier about whether or not we could choose God. But right here, it talks about how we are haters of God. We are hostile to God. We are not in love with God. The mind of set on the flesh hates God. Jesus taught us that we should love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what God has chosen us to. He has chosen us to loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That from here and for all of eternity, we would stand before God holy in love, as Jones would say. Holy in love. H-O-L-Y in love. Not W-H-O-L-L-Y. But holy in love. That we stand before God holy in love with Him. I think that's what Paul intends to say here. That we stand before God holy in love with Him. I mean, think again. Think about this. What is God doing? He's taking people who hate Him and bringing about the love of God from a heart that despises God. Amazing, right? It's amazing. I want to close with a few thoughts here. I want to talk about, very quickly, some implications of divine election. Some implications of divine election. What does this imply? What are some implications for us and things for us to apply? First one is to share the gospel with confidence and share it often. Share the gospel with confidence and share it often. 
Let me remind you of what Jesus said in John 10, verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So those whom God have given the Son, when they hear the voice of the Son, they will follow Him. They know Him. He knows them. They know Him. They will follow Him. Do you know what that means? That means that when we go forth and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that when those whom God has chosen, that when they hear the words of the Redeemer, they will respond by following Him. And we don't know who the elect are. We don't know. We don't need to know. God knows, and that's good enough. So we go. We share the gospel with confidence. We share it often, looking for Jesus' sheep. Just because someone doesn't respond right away, don't just assume that in your sovereignty and foreknowledge you know whether or not that person is redeemed. You might be sharing the gospel with them for 50 years, and finally they repent and exercise faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that when they hear the voice of the shepherd, that they know him and they follow him, and Jesus knows them. Do it with boldness. Do it often. Tell people of the love God has for the world and the special love that he has for his people that he would send Jesus to die on the cross for them. We know that the ones, when they are ready, when God has made them ready, that they will respond. Second implication. Rest in the assurance of salvation because it is ultimately God's work. Rest in the assurance. If you are striving to follow Jesus, striving to live a life that's holy, blameless, you can rest in assurance. This is ultimately God's work that He's doing in you. Your connectedness to these, these eternal blessings that Paul's talking about did not begin the day that you asked Jesus into your heart. They began the day that God chose you. That, the day that God put you in Christ, was the day your eternal blessings were sealed. Not the day you walked an aisle or joined a church. If you're a follower of Jesus, saved by the blood of the cross, you're connected to these eternal blessings the very moment that God put your name in Jesus. I just keep coming back to the phrase, before the foundation of the world, God wrote His children's name in the Lamb. He wrote my name in the Lamb. The assurance of your salvation is rooted not in how gifted your rhetoric was when you accepted Jesus. It's rooted in the electing, sovereignty, and gracious, and mercifulness of the Father. Third implication is this. Pursue holiness and blamelessness with all that you have, for the doctrine of election both demands the pursuit of and ensures its reality. Pursue holiness and blamelessness with all that you have, for the doctrine of election both demands the pursuit of and ensures its reality. All right, very quickly, okay? We're running out of time. Clearly, Scripture tells us that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? 1 Corinthians 9, I mean, it's just all over the place. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Understand that the pursuit of holiness in our lives is evidence of God's electing of our lives. Those whom He has chosen, He will make holy. Philippians 2. It was His work from the start. It's His work from the start to the finish mark, not from the moment after you prayed till the end. So his electing work ensures the reality of your holiness that is required for you to stand before God. That one day we'll stand before him holy and adored by him. And you understand that? We'll stand before him adored. Instead of abhorred, we will stand before him adored. He wrote our names in Jesus. There will be a reality then that begins with the pursuit of now. 
So pursue it hard. Election demands it. Now I want to talk just for a few moments about this idea of legalism. Struggle with legalism, right? So I'm going to pursue holiness. I got to struggle because I'm just trying to do it to, to earn my way into God's presence. And I'm trying to do it to, to be right before God or right before other people. And I, I just, I just want to speak as plainly as I can to you right this moment. It's just, uh, I just want to say this. She just don't understand God's sovereign election. If you struggle with illegalism, then you don't understand God's sovereign electing work. Think about this with me for a second. If you wander day by day struggling to earn your way into God's presence, I want to propose to you, you need to understand salvation and election in particular. Say, here's, here's the what I want to kind of juxtapose here is to say, I believe God was sovereign and rescued me from the pit of sin when I was utterly hopeless and helpless, and then to say, I struggle with living legalistically, wanting to earn your way into God's presence. It doesn't make any sense. How could you have both? If He chose you then because you were helpless and hopeless, and He chose you to make you right and holy and blameless before Him, you're forgetting that. You're forgetting that. You're forgetting that he, that he did that. It's either one or the other. It's either I spend my life pursuing, trying to be right with God, or I spend my life under the graciousness of God, knowing that He chose me. And so, what does that do? What does that do? It sets us free to pursue holiness with everything that we have. If I'm keeping in mind the fact that He chose me, I'm not worthy. I can't make myself worthy now either. Wow! I get to pursue it hard with everything. Here's what I've seen. Here's what I've seen. We say we struggle with legalism, and so what we do is we tend to swing the pendulum, swing the pendulum the opposite way. Not in such a way that we live ugly, immoral lives. That's obvious on the outside. We're too good at Christians to do that but in a way that avoids discipline and structure and rules and accountability and working hard. And we, what happens is we cry out and we go, oh, that feels legalistic. I don't want my kids to experience the same legalism. Because legalism is not the idea of keeping the law. Legalism is the idea of keeping the law so that you can earn your own salvation. But if election is true, then we couldn't do that then and we can't do that now. But here, let me present to you, particularly parents. I don't, I don't want my kids to see legalism in my life. Because when you don't pursue holiness with everything that you have, understanding that you can do nothing to make yourself right with God, when you don't do that, all you're doing is presenting to your kids another form of legalism. I can earn my salvation on my own. I can do it my way. God's way is the pursuit of holiness with everything that you have. If that's not the case in your life, you're just showing your kids that there's a different way to pursue being right with God than the pursuit of holiness that is the outworking of His electing work in eternity past. You see, divine election sets us free. It sets us free from legalism to do something special and unique. Lloyd-Jones says this, both terms, holiness and blameless, taken together mean an essential purity or state of health or wholeness. They mean a true and real life and being without anything in any way detracting. A perfect harmony with every part fulfilling the function for which it was designed. So we think about standing before God holy. Oh my goodness. Like we tend to think of holiness as just not doing that thing that's wrong and not doing that thing that's wrong and not telling a white lie but telling the truth. There's so much more to that. It's a whole gospel for a whole life. You see, the whole gospel here, particularly election, sets you free to pursue the whole life. You can work hard at holiness. You can work hard at blamelessness. You can work hard toward this whole life, the true life, the real life, without anything detracting. It's what you can work hard towards. You understand that the holiness and blamelessness is not just avoiding what is wrong, but is doing all the things that you were meant to do to bring glory to the Father and joy and satisfaction in your life. You're set free to do that. Set free to do that. To be chosen for holiness and fighting for holiness is really a pursuit 
of pure, unending joy in the Father. Life that is whole and in perfect harmony with our Creator. You're set free to do that. This is the good life. This is the whole life. I want to ask you, do you understand we're going to be like that? Do you understand? That's where we're going. And if that's where we're going, we begin the race now. We fight hard now. If that's where, we're, if that's where you are going, you will fight the race now. You will run the race now. You will fight hard now. So let me ask you this question again. How were you saved? How were you saved? I hope you'd begin that story an infinite, a time, infinite, a time, a infinite time earlier. Infinitely earlier. How did your... How was your dead soul brought to life? You couldn't do it. You were helpless. But praise God that he rescued you. That one day he said, Matt, be, he will be my child. Now again, if election is true, it sets me free to be what God has created me to be. An image bearer of his son filling the earth with the radiance of his glory, living the holiness of our God. I, you, we get to run hard after holiness. We get to put all our effort into wholeness, harmony, perfection. We get to pull off. We get to put all of our effort into a life that works as defined by God. A life where my heart always beats for the Father. A life where joy is never ceasing. A life where patience is abounding. A life where graciousness knows no end. A life where mercy is at every corner. A life where justice reigns. And a life where living the law of God is a delight to my heart. You've been chosen so that one day you would stand before the Father holy and blameless. If you have been chosen by God, you will run hard after the good life. Why? Because the one in whom we are found lived the good life for all of eternity, never failing for a moment. I encourage you with this C.S. Lewis quote. It says, continue seeking him with seriousness. Unless he wanted you, you would not be wanting him. Amen. Let's pray. We'll sing. Father, I pray that your people are encouraged. I pray that we'll run hard after holiness, knowing, knowing that, Father, we will be holy. Knowing that we will be blameless. And, Father, knowing in a very real sense, we even stand before you right now as holy and blameless. And Father, I pray that this would give us such fervor for evangelism and we would seek to share your gospel knowing that your sheep will hear the voice of your son that they will come Father that you will be glorified Father you are great you are great you are great Father you are great When we were hopeless and helpless, you looked on us in your, through the Son, through your Son, the one that would die, and you chose us anyways, knowing that it would cost you the death of your Son. That one sinner, the redeeming work of one sinner, if you had only chosen one person to redeem, it would have still cost you your Son. But instead, he bears the wrath not of just one person, but for all of us who, who you have chosen, Father. And so I pray, I pray, Father, that your, your children would know that they are your children. They would enjoy you today. Father, we would know that these eternal blessings are ours only because you decided 
and it's in your hands. Father, I believe we have free will to choose you, Father, but it is only your enabling of that will to choose you, our Father. For we would have kept choosing evil. But Father, you are good. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.